had a joke prepared about the sweater I was, that my wife made me wear, but I'm not wearing it anymore, so we'll just have to go straight into our scripture this morning. So if you would, open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, and we will start in verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does does not love his brother. For this is the message that, message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. <laughs> And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Horatio G. Spafford was a successful lawyer and businessman in Chicago with a lovely family, a wife, Anna, and five children. However, they were not strangers to tears and tragedy. Their young son died with pneumonia in 1871, and in that same year much of their business was lost in the Great Chicago Fire. Yet God in his mercy and kindness allowed the business to flourish once more. On November 21, 1873, the French ocean liner that his wife was on was crossing the Atlantic from the U.S. to Europe with 313 passengers on board. 
Among the passengers were his wife and their four daughters. Although he had planned to go with his family, he found it necessary to stay behind to help solve some unexpected businesses. He told his wife he would join her and their children in Europe in just a few days. About four days into the crossing of the Atlantic, the ship they were on collided with a powerful iron-hulled ship. Suddenly, all of those on board were in grave danger. His wife hurriedly brought the four children to the deck. She knelt there with her daughters and prayed to God that he would spare them if their boat would sink. And within about 12 minutes, their boat did sink beneath the dark waters of the Atlantic, carrying with it 226 of the passengers, including her four children. While Mr. Spafford was on his way, the boat they were on stopped roughly where his children had passed. The captain told him that's where they were. And as we all know, we're all familiar with the hymn, It Is Well. This is where he penned it. Mr. Spafford had absolute assurance of his salvation. He was so sure that his God was good that even in the midst of probably the most terrible tragedy that any of us can think of, he was able to write and pray to God that it was well with his soul. Having assurance of your salvation brings with it many benefits for your day-to-day lives. When something tragic happens, you find yourself still somehow filled with joy. Though you may be sad, though your heart may be broken, you find comfort and hope and joy and peace that your soul is safe in the embrace of our Savior. We live in trying times, after all, so who wouldn't want to be assured of their salvation? There's political chaos all around us. We've been in the midst of a global pandemic for roughly a year. So what separates us, Christians, from the rest of the world? It has to be the faith and hope we have in our God and his ability to save. Now let me define what I mean by having assurance of salvation. I do not mean that you walk down an aisle and that you said a prayer. Do I mean having absolute confidence that our soul is safe with Christ? Yes and no. Some lucky few do have that sort of confidence, and at times all of us have probably felt that kind of confidence. As fickle, finicky human creatures that are riddled with sin down to our very cores, we often have problems holding on to the assurance of our salvation. Even though as Christians we are no longer totally depraved in our sin or totally fallen like the rest of humanity, we still experience the long-term consequences of sin. Doubt has a way of creeping into our minds at the most inopportune of moments. This doubt has a way of robbing us of having such strong assurance of our faith. And sometimes it can even very closely take away all such feelings that we are safe in the arms of Christ. Sometimes we encounter false teachers who through clever words or smooth talk, they can begin to cause us to question whether or not we are really even saved in the first place. And this is the very thing the Christians that John was writing to were dealing with. False teachers creeping their way into the church. They talked a good-sounding game. They used big, smart-sounding words. They perhaps espoused deep philosophical truths, all of which can sound enticing to our human ears. John wrote this letter so that we, all of which can sound, that we might have such a strong assurance of our faith that even in the face of such things, even in the midst of adversary or great tragedy, we might remain steadfast in our Christian life. So now let's turn our attention back to the scriptures and try to unpack exactly what John was trying to convey to these struggling believers. Our text today seems to be separated into four parts. First, at the end of chapter 2, we see John giving reasons for why having assurance of salvation is important. Second, 
in chapter 3, in verses 1 through 3, he's giving encouragement to the reader by listing out a few of the benefits found in Christ. And third, in verses 4 through 10, he's helping us draw distinctions between the children of God and the children of Satan. Fourth, in verses 11 through 24, he is helping us grasp hold of this assurance which is so vital to our Christian faith. And so we begin our passage today in the last two verses of chapter 2, where John is giving us his reasoning why being assured of our salvation is so important. He begins, And now, little children, abide in him. It is my belief that the term he uses here to address the original readers, little children, is not a term of condescension, but more a term of endearment. I believe that his intent was more along the lines of, Dear children, John loved these people, and so it was all the more important to him that they would grab hold of their faith all the more tightly. He wanted to see these dear Christians to abide in Christ. To help us better understand the context of what John is getting out here, I think it would be helpful to back up a few verses to get a bigger picture. In chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, we read, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Father has the Father also. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you that, about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But it, as his anointing teaches you about everything, and it is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. I want to look at what John means when he says to abide in him. John uses some form of abiding here six times, counting what we read in verse 28, emphasizing that there's an important point he's trying to make sure we understand. The first phrase is, abide in you. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Clearly, this is referring to the gospel, the good news that Christ came to save sinners. The second is just like the first, abides in you. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will, and here's the third, abide in the Son. So, if what we heard from the beginning, namely the gospel, abides in us, then we too will abide in Christ. First, the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. This one is a little different from the others. The anointing, this anointing is better and more significant than every other case of anointing by oil that we see in the entirety of the scriptures. Oil drives up and will often need to be repeated because of some grievous sin. The anointing we receive from Christ is forever. It seals us forever into the promises that he gives to his elect. Finally, John again points to the fact that this is nothing new. Just as it has taught you, abide in him. So, dear children, abide in him. To abide in Christ is to remain in Christ, to be secure in Christ by believing in the gospel, thus receiving the eternal anointing of Christ. This anointing seals you forever as one of the sheep of Jesus. 
And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him at his coming. The second coming of Christ will not be like the first. While the first coming of Christ was humble and modest, he entered into this world just like any of us. He was conceived of a virgin and had a normal birth. There were supernatural elements to his birth, but it was largely just like any birth would have been back then. Very few people were aware of the fact that all of the prophecies that they had been awaiting for thousands of years, that these prophecies were being fulfilled as they were coming and going, just like any other night. The second coming, though, everyone will know about this coming. There will be nothing secret about Christ's return. He will come back from the clouds, all eyes will be on him, and he will make every knee bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Is this event that John is talking about here? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So abide in Christ that you may have confidence while you are bowing the knee. Confidence that you have walked the walk, you have fought the fought. Confidence that in the moment he will look at you and say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Unshaking, unwavering confidence that all of this was not for nothing. All of your hardships and struggles, all of the bad times, all of the painful times, all of the misery that you experienced in your short life was not for nothing. You are holding fast to the faith for this moment. Your Savior has returned to give you what he promised you. On the negative side, though, not everyone will look up into the sky with gleeful hope. Only the children of God get that privilege. Instead, the unsaved will look up in shock and confusion and fear. At first, perhaps they won't understand what's going on, but all the more quickly they will understand. They will, be, they will feel shame, shame about their unbelief, their foolishness, their sin, shame of the times they mocked God, shame about all of their ungratefulness for the time they were gifted on this earth. Ignorance will be no excuse here. When Jesus comes again, everyone who has not believed in his name will be made to bend the knee, and they will be put to shame. This is why John wants us to have assurance of our faith, that when we bend the knee, we will not be made to. We will do it willfully and graciously, or thankfully. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Again, there is a confidence to be had from abiding in Christ. If you practice the righteousness of Christ, there is a sense in which you will recognize the fruit of fellow believers. You will see the fruit of the Spirit on their lives. You will see the works they are doing that come from their faith. And you may be sure that these people have been born of Jesus. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. In chapter 4, verse 10, John alludes a little bit more to what kind of love has been given to us. And this, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The type of love given to us from the Father it's a wonderful, condescending love that we should be made heirs and be called his sons, we who were heirs of sin and guilt because of the curse of God. This kind of love has made us children of God, and so we are. This type of confidence and assurance and almost stark realization John seems to have here, and so we are. We are children of God. The reason why the world does not know him. The world did not know Christ. In Luke 23, 24, while Jesus was nailed to the cross, suffering for our sins, bearing the weight of our guilt and shame, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know, what, they know not what they do. The world did not realize who it was they were killing. A prophet, a teacher, a good man. 
Some of them knew these things, but the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the world didn't know exactly who it was they were killing. And thus the world does not know us. It does not know what dignity or privileges or enjoyments that they experience day in and day out have all been given to them from God. The world does not realize that us poor, foolish, ignorant Christians, that we are the favorites of God in heaven. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Though in the past we were enemies of God, we were rebels who hated God. Now we are God's children. We long for our perfect, glorified state. We long to be in our new bodies, free from sin. We long for these aches and pains to leave us. The grunts and groans we make when we do something simple as stand up from the couch will be no more. The weight of sin and a fallen creation that we deal with every day will be no more. We will be forever healthy and forever perfect. We will be able to forever and always worship God like he intended from the beginning in the garden. We long for this to happen, but we also understand that this is not going to become something, that this is not something that becomes a reality until Christ appears again. But only Christians will see him as he really is. We will see him in all of his reassuring glory when he finally comes to take us home. The lost will see him in a different light. They will see his frowns and the terror of his majesty. They will feel his wrath and his judgment. But those of us who place our hope in him, we know and understand that the Lord is altogether pure and holy. So we must also strive towards that goal. We race on towards the goal, aiming to increase in purity and righteousness until the end of our days. In verses 4 through 10, we see an interesting turn. John, se- John seems to turn towards a sobering warning, certainly a scary-sounding one at a surface-level reading. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. This should be obvious to us. If you practice sin, you practice lawlessness. The law shows us our sin, and the breaking of the law is lawlessness. And we'll skip verse 5 and move on to verse 6 for now. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now, wait. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, but I keep on sinning. I hate it, and it eats at me, and it bothers me, but I do keep on sinning. Even Paul struggled with sin. In Romans seven fifteen, we read Paul say, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. If we back up to chapter 1 of 1 John, in verse 8, we read, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. All of you are good. All of you are good theologians, of course. So you know and you believe, like me, that the Bible cannot contradict itself. So we must conclude that John is continuing to emphasize this practice of sinning, this lifestyle of intentional, constant sin. Have you been struggling with the same sin for years? Does this mean that you aren't actually saved? Not necessarily, but it definitely could mean that. So I would encourage you to really examine your heart and ask God to show you the truth of your salvation. In verse 8, we read, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And then we read back up in verse 5, 
you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. John gives us a very clear statement about why Jesus came to earth, to destroy the works of the devil. This is what was promised in Genesis whenever God was giving the consequences of the fall, that the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. The devil has been sinning from the beginning. He is the author of sin. Thus we can conclude that Jesus coming to save the sinner, save sinners, was not a change in God's plans, nor was it a later addition to God's plan. Just as the devil has been sinning from the beginning, so it was always God's plan to save us by sending Jesus to be born of a virgin, live a perfect and sinless life, and to be crucified and raised to be with the Father until he returns again. In verses 9 and 10, John is giving us some encouragement that no one who is truly born of God makes a practice of sinning because God's seed, that is the Holy Spirit, abides in him. The Holy Spirit brings conviction to those of us who he has regenerated. When Christians sin, we feel conviction. Conviction is not just a sense of guilt or shame because someone could find out what we've done. Real biblical conviction goes deeper than that. By sinning, we are making a mockery of the cross of Christ. Jesus suffered so brutally for us, and yet we continue to sin. Sometimes as if it isn't really that big of a deal. It's just a little lie, or it's just a piece of candy we'll tell ourselves. And this should trouble us. We should be like Paul, agonizing over why we do these things that we do not want to do. It is by this feeling of conviction that it is evident who are children of God, and who are children of the devil. Christians will be convicted of their sins, and the unsaved will continue in their ways of thinking nothing of it. It is, of course, possible for a Christian not to feel such a strong conviction for a season, whether that be because they have fallen so grossly into sin or because God has taken away some measure of his revealing light. If you are truly saved, however, God will bring you back into a right walking with him. In verses 11 through 24, we begin to see John unpack for us how we grasp hold of this assurance of our salvation that he desires all believers to have. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. In John 13, 34, Christ says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Now I feel like I shouldn't have to tell you this, but I will anyways. Do not murder, murder your brother or sister. We shouldn't be like Cain. If we skip to verse 15, we read, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. John is doing what Christ does in Matthew chapter 5. He is giving us further revelation on what has always been the case. Jesus tells us that if we so much as look at a woman lustfully, then we have committed adultery. John tells us that if we hate our brother, we are a murderer. So let's bring that back to being like Cain. Do you hate your brother? And this isn't just your flesh and blood biological brother or sister. Do you hate your fellow Christian? Then you are a murderer, and we know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. 
Throughout this block of text, John makes one thing very clear. Christians are to love each other. If we look at verse 14 and 16, we read, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. This is not a suggestion. John isn't merely suggesting that we should love our brothers. This is a command. We must love our brothers and sisters, for this is evidence that the light of Christ is in us, and we have been born again. And what does it look like to love our brothers and sisters? In verse 17, we read, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children... Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The type of love we ought to have for one another should look like the type of love the early church had for each other in Acts 2, 45-47. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food, food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So this is the type of love we are commanded to have. It's a sacrificial love. If we see a brother or sister in need, we should do whatever we can to meet that need. Not doing so could very well be evidence that we are not of the faith. For how can God's love abide in you if you do not love the brotherhood? Acts also brings another interesting application for this love into the equation. These Christians were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. So I pose to you the question, are you loving your brothers if you never sit in the temple, or rather in our modern day context, if you never come to church with them? Are you loving your brothers by sitting out in the middle of the lake fishing or watching the game on your clout couch, claiming that you can worship God just as well in private as you can surrounded by those who love the Lord the same way you claim to? Are you loving your brothers and sisters if you never invite them into your home or even invite them to eat with you? By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. John is giving us a tangible way to measure if we are of the truth and to reassure, reassure, reassure us. That is to find assurance that we are in good standing with Christ. If our heart condemns us, how much greater is God than our heart? If your heart is telling you that you sinned while we are prone to forget or to not fully grasp how much we actually sin, how much more does God know? He knows everything. He knows all of our hidden sins, all of the things we try to forget, all of the things we don't even realize we do. And if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence that we have not sinned. This is where we must be careful. Simply not having conviction about something does not mean that it is not a sin. We can convince ourselves that something is not a sin. We must measure our thoughts and actions against the scriptures. If our heart is truly not convicting us, if we have truly done nothing to feel conviction over, then indeed we may have confidence to approach God. 
And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. In chapter 5, verse 14, we read, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he will hear us. John is not here saying that if we ask for literally anything, that we will receive it. John is saying that we will receive whatever we ask if we ask according to his will. If we keep his commandments and do what pleases him, then the things we ask for will naturally align to God's will, and thus we will receive these things that we ask for. John spells out clearly what these commandments we must keep are. First, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. So the first commandment that we must keep is to believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. And second, that we are to love one another. We must love the brothers and sisters. For whoever keeps these commandments abides in Christ, or abides in God, and God likewise abides in him. Thus, this is how we gain assurance of our faith. For we know that God abides in him, that God abides in us by the testimony of his spirit. So how is it that we find assurance of our salvation? First, we must examine ourselves to make sure we are actually a child of God and not a child of the devil. Are we living habitually in sin or are we doing our best to do what God has commanded us? Second, do we love our brothers and sisters? Are we striving to be with our Christian family? This is how we know we have assurance. It would be a gross misunderstanding to place our assurance on something such as simply walking an aisle and repeating a prayer. After all, saying a prayer isn't what saves you. Faith in Christ is. Evidence that our lives have been changed. And this is the way we find assurance in Christ. And as a way of closing, I would like to read a prayer from the Valley of Vision about assurance. Almighty God, I am loved with everlasting love, clothed in eternal righteousness, my peace flowing like a river, my comforts many and large, my joy and triumph unutterable, my soul lively with the knowledge of salvation, my sense of justification unclouded. I have scarce anything to pray for. Jesus smiles upon my soul as a ray of heaven. And my supplications are swallowed up in praise. How sweet is the glorious doctrine of election when based upon thy word and wrought inwardly within the soul. I bless thee that thou wilt keep the sinner thou hast loved and hast engaged that he will not forsake thee, else I would never get to heaven. I wrong the work of grace in my heart if I deny my new nature and my eternal life. If Jesus were not my righteousness and redemption, I would sink into nethermost hell. By my misdoings, shortcomings, unbelief, unlove, if Jesus were not by the power of his Spirit my sanctification, there is no sin I should not commit. Oh, when shall I have his mind? When shall I be conformed to his image? All the good things of life are less than nothing when compared with his love. And with one glimpse of thy electing favor, all the treasures of a million worlds could not make me richer, happier, more contented, for his unsearchable riches are mine. One moment of communion with him, one view of his grace, 
is ineffable and estimable. But, O God, I could not long after thy presence if I did not know the sweetness of it. In such I could not love, I could not know except by the Spirit in my heart, nor love thee at all unless thou didst elect me, call me, adopt me, save me. I bless for the covenant of grace. Mainly what I want us to take away from this is, O God, I could not long after your presence if I did not know the sweetness of it. We would not desire God if we were not saved. We would be like the rest of the world. We would hate him. We would rebel against him, and we would still be enemies. If you would, pray with me, please. Father, you are so much higher than we are. Your ways are higher than ours. You know everything. You created everything. Though we are struggling here on earth, nothing is a struggle for you in heaven. And we know that assurance is ultimately a gift from you, God. We pray that in these trying times, that we would have salvation, that we would have assurance that we are indeed of the faith. We pray that you would just continually bless us with this type of assurance, that we would not falter in our weakness, that we would not get complacent when things are going well, but instead that we would always keep our eyes on you, that we would always lean on you not on our own understanding. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.